Welcome to the RCC Points of View podcast, brought to you by the Scottish Residential Childcare Workers Online Forum. In the fourth episode of this podcast series, looking at secure care, I speak with Rod Skipson, who is a practice development advisor with the Children and Young Persons Centre for Justice. In this episode, Ross talks about his experience of supporting the secure sector in Scotland, alongside providing his own views on physical restraint and his hopes for the sector over the next 10 years. I really enjoyed recording this podcast and hope you enjoyed listening too. So without further ado, please welcome Ross Gibson. Hi Ross, thanks very much for taking part in the podcast. So just to kind of First question, you know, a wee bit about yourself, background, and you know your current role, and what your link is with secure care in Scotland. Yeah, sure. Thanks for inviting me along. Um, so, Ross Gibson, social worker, but I now work for the Children and Young People Centre for Justice (CYCJ), hosted at the University of Strathclyde. Uh, so, my role is really varied, and all the practice development advisors at CYCJ have slightly different work streams and tasks, um, but mine has to look into about diversion for prosecution, support and participation across the youth justice sector, um, looking at uh, the role for children's hearing system for all 16, 17 year olds, uh, um, particularly focus on extending the age at which you can be referred into the children's hearing system, um, supporting colleagues to implement the findings of the promise, and I'm also doing work alongside my colleague Debbie Nolan on rolling out the Secure Care Pathways and Standards, uh, which were launched last year, uh, and do a wee bit of research as well about the life experiences of children who have been in secure care through two sentences that I've carried out and published recently. So that's, that's it's, there's loads more on top of that, uh, but it's a really wide role, which I love. Um, and uh, the same time connection to secure is that as a social worker I was using secure care loads and loads and loads when I was working with, um, with Glasgow as a social worker um, and uh, so I, I feel as if I've got quite a bit of experience of supporting children before, during and after their time in secure care um, so that's, I suppose that's the experience I bring with me to the role and in my part time, in my, in my free time rather I'm doing a PhD uh, on secure care life experiences and the perspective, the perspectives of children who are in secure care about the trajectory that led to them being placed there. Fantastic. In terms of that particular um, bit of work for yourself and your spare time, how far ahead are you in terms of you know the, the PhD? Which stage are you at just now? Well, I'm about to have. Because I'm doing it part time, the 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 traditional time scales are about out the window. So uh, I've although I started in 20, August September 2019, I'm just approaching my first year review, which will be uh, very shortly. So you know I've got a time frame in my head of when I would like to be finished. Of I want to have it done by 25th of January 2025. If I do it before then, then great. But that's a wee bit of another another three and a half years from now. Um, right. So wait and see if I've managed to meet that target. That's quite quite a tight target considering it's part time. You mm-hmm. know, um, I very very much kind of 
admire you and you know would like to do something similar myself in the future. So just in terms of all the different pieces of work and bits of research, what's the latest kind of developments within secure care that you're most excited about? I suppose the two biggest pieces, uh, biggest developments that are I think are really exciting are the secure care pathways and standards that Charlie did to earlier, and it's got to be the promise, which was uh, launched uh, a year, just over a year ago as well. And the two of them in, in conjunction, I think is could has got the potential to change considerably the way in which we respond to children who are in conflict with the law or who are pose or exposed or pose the highest level of risk. Uh, so there's loads of parts of that, which I think um, will change the day-to-day -day practice within the secure environment. Mm -hmm. Also, what we do as area team social workers and as residential workers and teachers for those children who aren't within the secure care environment, uh, but who continue to experience some of the real the difficult life experiences, which um, can impact upon the quality of their life and upon their behaviour. Um, so these loads of, you know, I, I, those are the two standout parts for me. So, right. Uh, so, see, in terms of the secure care standards, how did that? Where did that evolve from? Uh, you know, and yeah. you know, if you give a wee bit on that, that'd be really, I think, interesting for people listening. Yeah. So I only became involved with secure care pathways and standards um, more recently, um, supporting Debbie Nolan, who's the lead for secure care at, at CYCJ. But I kind of predates Debbie as well. Um, Alison Goff, when she was based at uh, CYCJ. Uh, was the lead in the Secure Care National Project. And through her work uh, with the sector, but also work, through her work with uh, key stakeholders in the um, in the secure care environment, but also uh, more especially the work of STAR, which is a group for uh, people with experience of secure care, they really helped to shape the direction that uh, the, the, the Scottish government really helped to shape the direction that we took in terms of shaping the secure care pathways and standards, um, not as a, just as a standalone group, but within the secure care settings as well. So when you look at the, the website, securecarestandards.com, um, mm -hmm. you will see that the, the artwork on that website is created by young people. The content of those actual standards are, have been heavily influenced by the views of children and young people who were currently in secure care at, at that time. Um, so it, it's a really great piece of co-production. So it ties in with other pieces of my work stream um, that, that we should really aspire to. So the 44 standards there that Alison really helped to drive forward and make sure that it was a space, an opportunity for people who had lived the experience of being in a, a locked environment could tell us exactly what ought to happen before, during, and after the time in secure care. So those standards were launched uh, in October of last year. And Debbie, who leads in the, the, the rollout of that, and I support her with it, our job is to um, get people up to speed about what those standards are, um, get people uh, more comfortable, comf comfortable and confident in thinking about what they're doing already to meet these particular standards, what they need to do to, to get there, uh, what support do we need to, to offer from CYCG or other partners to the whole workforce uh, and landscape of of services that support children who pose or are exposed to the highest level of risk? So these 44 standards that are created, uh, as I said, it covers the four, the three stages of before, during and after. 
that I, I think um, you for me when I was a youth justice social worker, I would say over fifty percent, close to seventy five percent of the kids that I was working with could potentially have ended up in secure care one way or the other. Other, so these standards had they been around at that time I was practicing would have would have and ought to have influenced my practice on a day to day basis. So I think a key message I'd like to get across uh, to everybody listening out there that the standards isn't just for uh, staff who are working within St Mary's, Kibble, Rossi, Edinburgh, and the Good Shepherd. It's for the area team social worker that's got. A kid on a supervision order, it's for a residential worker, it's for a teacher, it's for CAMS workers and so on and so forth. Um, and more importantly, it's for those kids as well. So they ought, ought to be able to look at these standards and say, um, for example, that the standard number two is about being needs are, their needs are met by appropriate supports in the community, which are right for me and by people who are important to me. These supports me help keep me and others safe, prevent my liberty from being restricted. So you can see that, you know, if you, just by reading number, um, standard number two, this isn't about a child who's been admitted into secure care. This is about a child that needs support in the community uh, to respond to whatever present needs are present. So it's relevant to everybody. Similar of the after standards isn't just about the social worker, and it isn't just about the, and isn't the end of the relationship for the secure care workers either. There's, I think it's really important that we maintain those relationships as people leave the setting that they're in and move on to and transition to wherever it is they're going. So it's good to see that in the, the standards, there is recognition that those relationships are important um, and those any transitions um, will continue beyond that time. I think, mm -hmm. don't I keep talking here, but I think that um, other developments around about the promise are really important for secure care. And there is um, some challenges ahead, as, as it ought to be, about how we actually achieve what, as we've said, that we're going to set out in the promise. And that's um, the domain of secure care is, is exactly one of those challenges. And I, I know that Ian Milligan in one of your previous podcasts kind of alluded to this, that we're asking secure care to be the for the shortest time possible and we're depriving children of their liberty for the shortest time possible. But we're also expecting and asking secure care to develop, uh, to provide, develop a really strong relationship, provide relationship-based practice that addresses trauma. And it's a real difficult balance to, dis to, to, to hold those two things at the same time and make it the shortest possible time, but at the same time deliver an intervention that is really therapeutic and responds to significant levels of diversities. Because we yeah. know from the, from the work that I've done in censuses and other people's work about the life experiences of children who are in secure care and the significant uh, levels of adversity at, at various different levels and of the very different types. So there are lots of challenges ahead, the promise. And but if it's, of course, there's going to be challenges because if this was really easy, we would have done it years ago. So I, I think mm -hmm. I, I think there's lots of hard ground to cover in the next ten years to achieve achieve the promise and um, keep keep the promise and to achieve the potential that's within that uh, report. Yeah. 
Uh, see, in respect to Ian's podcast, he made, he made a couple of kind of interesting observations, especially about the kind of desire for, you know, essentially young people that are currently in prison, you know, like, for example, Pullman Youth Prison, and, you know, secure care kind of dovetailing and pretty much, you know, preventing that from happening. And, you know, those children or young people that are in prison to be in a secure environment rather than prison. So in respect to that, Ian suggests that actually looking at the kind of the data, that would lead to an increase in the secure care provision. What's your thoughts on that? So I agree that we shouldn't have children in prison-like settings. And we currently have, well, if you go to the CYCJ website, cycj.org.uk, uh, you'll be see, able to see exactly how many children we have in Poland. Uh, but today it's round about 20. It fluctuates, of course. And if you look back at the figures from 2010, you'll see that we've significantly, I think there's about 80% reduction in the number of children who are in, are in the, that setting. So if, if we were to say that those those children, which they are, because they're under 18 and we're looking to incorporate and adhere to the UNCRC, if we take those children out of secure, sorry, out, out of YOIs and prisons, then we need to think about what we would be doing. Now, it's, I don't think the job is necessarily just decanting every single child from Pullman into a secure care environment. There very well could be other, given that 83% of the children who are in Pullman are there on remand, and we really need to be doing something about that. Given the high levels of remand, we really need to be asking the questions, what is it as a sector and services and organisations that, that means that, that we're not providing perhaps the confidence amongst judiciary that they can bail the child away from entering Pullman to begin with? So mm -hmm. if, if the child is there on demand, I, I, my, my view would be that what we need to make sure that we are offering the most intensive, robust bail packages that we can in order for a child not to be placed in that sentence to begin with. But if they're going to be remanded or if they're going to be uh, sentenced a period in detention, it's certainly my view that that, that should be undertaken uh, within the secure care environment. So if we're thinking about just moving 20 kids, most of them are in, there on demand into the secure care environment, that will expand uh, potentially and it will have a change in dynamics because although two thirds of the child, well, sorry, yeah, two thirds of Scottish children who are in secure care right now uh, are 15, 16 and 17. Um, so we'd be, and we'd be expanding that part of the population and that's going to have slight change of dynamics. You know, we've currently got some 12 and 13 year old children in there. We've been then adding the, a greater proportion of older children that some people might feel a lot bit anxious about that depending on the circumstances of that 12 year old and depending on the circumstances of the of the, the person who's been placed there on remand serving a sentence but my point is one of my reports to that to that would be we're already doing that we already have 16 17 year olds within the secure care environment some of whom are there on remand because they happen to be still subject to community supervision, compulsory supervision order, and some of them are sentenced to a period of detention and are serving that period of detention within the secure care environment. So um, I, I do take Ian's point, there is a potential for increase, but at the same time, uh, not every single one of those child, 
children should they shouldn't be in the moments they're off with and we ought to be providing alternatives to secure care whenever we can that can meet those needs um and risks without resorting to the deprivation of liberty so it's i, I do take the point i'm not i'm sure that he has point is is very nuanced as well but i think there's more completely there's a complexity to that that i thought i'd raise the other thing uh -huh. to talk about is the, the significant proportion of children who are in Scottish secure care provision who are from out with Scotland, which um, as a, fr a frontline social worker working in Glasgow, I really wasn't aware of back then because you're only seeing the kids that you see. But through the work that I've been doing over the last few years, I've recognised that around the one third of the children are from England or Wales. That has big implications for them, but it also means that our secure care provision is close to capacity at times. Um, and if we are thinking about moving the children from a lot, one lot setting into another, um, if though, if we're con that might, if we're continuing to use, sorry, if we're continuing to see significant numbers of from children from England and Wales within secure care, there might not be space for that. But mm -hmm. also, if we're moving these children over, it might mean there's no space for the English and Welsh local authorities to be using secure. So. Um, Another point within the um, secure care, the promise was about delivering residential services for people not from the, who who live in England and Wales or beyond Scotland. Anyway, that might be an issue going forward for the secure care settings that we we don't see as many English and Welsh and Northern Irish children in that setting to begin with. And that's interesting. I remember, you know, a particular provider putting some, you know, um, stuff out in the media saying, you know, essentially to the Scottish government, start using this and we'll know, you, we'll know you'd need to, you know, you know bring in cross-border placements. And pretty much it was, a, I suppose, a kind of call to arms as far as I was concerned to say, you know, you know why are you not using this? You know, what, what's happening here? And from that, I think what's happened is, you know, just through my knowledge base, is that the, the, the demand for secure in Scotland from Scottish local authorities at that point in time didn't seem to be there. So it's that bit about, you know, you know as, a, as a fair business perspective, if you want to kind of frame it that way, you know, secure providers have got to, you know, remain, you know, um, you know in terms of having their head above water. Um, and you know, it's, so it's, it's that bit of it. It's really kind of complicated, and then we need to consider the cost. And you know, and, and you know, the, the, the different kind of routes in. So, for example, through the youth justice system, the cost is made by the Scottish government. Whereas, if it's um, you know done uh, through the children's healing system, the cost comes directly through the local authorities. And I think that's something we need to kind of you know think about as well. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, there are definitely challenges with the way the, the commissioning service is set up at present. Um, and But I would really, really hope that given what we've said in the promise and, and given that it was ex accepted in full by the Scottish government, um, that, that local authorities would not be considering the financial impact of, of any admission into secure care or from secure care in their care planning. Um, if we want to get it right for every child, including those who are in the locked environment, then that 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 means that you need to be the make the best decision based on 
the merits, the, the risks, needs out of the children in question. And then I suppose from my perspective, in terms of intervention within a residential house, that, you know, I can, I can see the challenges in terms of how it's really important that, you know, when the intervention takes place. Um, you know, especially what, what, what can I do better as a manager to support young people that are involved, you know, with kind of, you know, youth justice, you know, um, a social work uh, and, or maybe offend them, you know, what can I do as a manager to, you know, you know support that young person? Uh, although, right to... although, Joe, I, I, I'm not. I, 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 I want to make clear that uh, children's secure care. Not all of them have been involved in the youth justice side of things as well. That's no, right, the, yeah. the, the the rates of mental ill health amongst the secure care population are, are huge. Yeah, the levels of self harm are really concerning and worrying. Um, that lots of children are being placed have been placed in secure care in the past because of sexual exploitation and and criminal exploitation um so that's a really it's, it's for me it's a really interesting point about it's a real interesting conundrum about children who enter the secure care environment because of their offending children who enter the secure care environment because of their vulnerabilities and are they different children uh, for me it's a really interesting question to to ponder over um for me, I think that they are the same children who are manifesting and displaying those behaviours in, in a slightly different way. But we, we, and it really comes down to the lens through which we as practitioners are viewing that child. Are we viewing that child about the child who's exposed to real, loads of vulnerabilities on the Friday night and that's the only thing we're worried about? Or are we viewing that child about the harm they have caused on the Saturday or the trouble they've been in that day? And depending, I suppose, depending on your your viewpoint as a practitioner, perhaps what your priorities as an organisation are, you will you could take a very different slant onto what the, the needs of this child are. And I think that reflects what we think of secure carers. And, and I, so we sort of we line I've been using in different presentations and chats that I've been doing uh, during my PhD um, stuff is that secure care means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And depending on where you stand, you'll get a slightly different perspective of it. So um, people are there because of the level of offending or the type of offending they've caused, but it's not a prison. Uh, people are there and they're receiving education, but we don't, and they are inspected against uh, education standards. But you, you, for a lot of people, they don't think of it as a school, although the Ian talked about the history of where secure care came from. Um, a lot of people are there because of the self-harm and mental health challenges they have, but we don't necessarily think of it as a hospital. Uh, and, and so, and lots of children live there, but it's, we, we, we don't, well, it's an interesting point. We, we call them secure care units, secure units. We don't call it a secure children's home or a secure children's house. So it all automatically has that slant on it. Um, so I think Ian alluded to a report in his podcast about uh, between a was it a between a hospital and a uh, between a hospital and a house or thereabouts Aye. that that report which is far more articulately than I've just uh, tried to do but thirty years ago was talking about how security had its multiple purposes uh, and it wasn't it was really hard to pin down what exactly what it was and as it's in the residential childcare is marginalised already and then secure care within the spectrum of residential child care is marginalized and has received less attention 
than mm. any, any of those services. So it has a unique setting within the suite of interventions and supports that we offer in Scotland. Um, but as one which I think has got some great merits to it and have witnessed firsthand the, the results that we can achieve uh, in within secure care. Um, and I think this alludes to your question about was there a role, is there a role for secure care going forward? And, you know, I would love to live in a Scotland where we're not depriving children of their liberty, where they're not um, entering a place where they don't have the, the, the freedoms that they ought to have as a child. However, more importantly, I'd rather, perhaps more importantly, I would rather live in a Scotland where children are experiencing the adversities, the traumas, the neglects, the abuses that precipitate admission into secure care. Um, but in the absence of those two worlds, um, I, there, are, there is a real need at times for a child to be kept safe. And if we can't do it in the community, if we, if we, um, if we can't do it in the community and, and honouring the, the rights to liberty, then it needs to be done in some way. And the, the secure care setting for me has lots of things with it, who, that can make that a really as positive a, a journey as it possibly can be and pr provide the, the opportunity to re, you know press the reset button get themselves ready for a, 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 a change of direction and and I'm not somebody that's saying that we should shut down every single secure unit tomorrow it's, it's just impossible to start off with but I want to create a Scotland where the young young people don't experience the risks and vulnerabilities that result in them having some really horrible things happen, one of which might be a behaviour which results in them being admitted into a secure care environment. Mm -hmm. Because at the, the, there's so many things that can be done in that setting and the secure care pathways and standards articulate the need to, to provide broad vista of support and help and that's already being done within these settings um, I, I think that the, the work that colleagues within the five secure settings do is really invaluable uh, and, and it makes a real difference to children's lives if we look back at the work that Alison Goff did when she was here she will, uh, her reports were talking about children who are admitting, admitting that if it wasn't for this setting I would be dead uh, they felt really safe here and that's that's great. That's exactly what we're wanting. That they feel safe and that they're help helping to overcome some of the ch challenges that they've experienced. But at the same time, there are children who feel experience secure care as a punishment, um, as a as a hostile setting. So through the work of secure care pathways standards, implementation of the promise, and whatever else we can do here at CYCJ, we really want to make those sort of experience is less less common. Aye. Well, that's really interesting. And I suppose just kind of some of the, when you were talking, I've got additional questions just because of what you've been saying, you know, and so that bit about, you know, um, when you mentioned a bit about some children in secure care, essentially they're just, you know, real kind of, you know, challenges with their mental health. And the new secure, you know, the national inpatient secure um, yeah, hospital down in North Ayrshire is due to open. What's your, you know, in, in terms of, what's your thoughts on that? Um, 
I welcome it. It's long overdue that um, children shouldn't be be placed in a setting because there's a lack of health provision and anything that can enhance the level of community supports to address these particular needs needs to be a good thing, including a uh, Foxglove in North Ayrshire. Um, I know some of the people that are involved in that project through previous work experiences and I have great confidence that they'll provide a, a level of care there that is is going to help a, a number of children and young people who otherwise would have to uh, would either perhaps not have this any support at times but also get support in settings that might not be necessarily set up to respond to their particular needs yeah. um, I also think at the same time that that doesn't mean we don't try and address those needs in a community setting, uh, in their own home and residential care, wherever they happen to be. Um, yeah, the better health needs of children in secure care and residential child care are uh, significantly increased compared to the general population. So anything yeah. we can do to enhance the, the suite of services there can only be a good thing. Yeah, and, and that I, I totally agree with you there. So the, the, other, the other kind of question I was kind of thinking about is just going back to your own experience as a, <clears throat> excuse me, youth justice social worker uh, back you on direct practice. And the first time you walked into this unit, you know, what was your initial, can you remember what you how you felt and what your observations were? The first time I was in a security unit was actually when I was on my first placement as a student. So I had worked in residential before uh, I uh, trained. Um, so I was used to a children's house, but the children's houses that I was used to were actually uh, tenement buildings and the single end houses and things like that. So uh, I was, it was, they looked a bit odd from the outside. I thought it looked a bit, you could tell it, it didn't look like a normal house, but it didn't look like a, a, a jail, as it ought not to, of course. I didn't look like a hospital either. Um, I think it, the first one I went to was is now closed. It was St Phillips, um, but it was just the the, the scale of the the, the building. Um, I think it was the the bricks was the first thing I saw in the glass doors, and then just the first thing it hit, uh, you, you notice is that the size of the doors that clunk around you, right. and the fobs and the airlocks and so on that. I think you and Stevie spoke about last last time. Uh -huh. um, so uh, interesting experience there. And then when I was a frontline, was a frontline social worker, when I was a social worker back in uh, youth justice days in Govan uh, in Pollock, uh -huh. I was you know I was in there two or three times a week. So um, can I get used to it? I suppose. But so I I I, I think thinking back, I can see. I can very easily see how young people and children felt really daunted and, and scared the very first time they they they, they experienced. Yeah. So okay, that's really really good. Uh, it's really good that within the secure care pathways and standards that I'm expecting children who are entering that setting to have received some advice, not uh, support information about where the building is, what it looks like. Really innovative ideas of some people about uh, touring the secure environment uh, with a iPad via FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, so that the child 
can get a, an idea of what it's like before they come in. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I could see why the children would be quite daunted by it because it, it, it was an interesting experience the first time I visited one. Mm-hmm. I remember myself when I first my first experience of working in residential was insecure, and I remember walking in and it was quite a kind of yeah, you know, you could just feel it, you know, the, the atmosphere and how what I done to you physiologically. And I was a twenty early, my early twenties. So you can imagine. So it's a while ago like, then, Joe. Oh, I know that long ago. <laughs> six months ago. Um and uh, it was uh, you can imagine what that'd be like for a twelve year old, thirteen year old uh, child, essentially. You know, it must be really scary. Um and I know that in talking to Stevie in the last podcast, he'd mentioned the the, the normal aspect of uh, living with insecure such as fun days open days and my question was to see stevie can you make could you be able to make that more often rather than just the you know not the norm and it kind of basically you know alluded to the fact that well actually there's a a requirement to keep kids safe and that means that you know there's got to be protocols etc etc so for me i'd be quite interested in how radical that can go you know including moving forward how the environment looks Rather than, as you, you know, a kind of courtyard type approach to a, a, a resource whereby it's like, you know, the houses around a courtyard and it's very much institutional looking, would it be ever be possible to re- redesign within Secure and build actual houses within, you know, a, a kind of perimeter area, uh, you know, where it's more kind of normalised as best we can? So I thought that'd be quite, quite an interesting uh, option for one of the Secures. Yeah, um, just, just, just just on that, that you know, if if it's, it's great that we're thinking of 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 the landscape and what the physical environment means for for the children, because this is because it is their home for the time. Are they listening? Who has experience of secure care? Whether they if they were there as a a child or a young person um, of any age, whether that was twenty years ago, five years ago, two weeks ago. Then please do get in touch with me at the CYCJ. We have a we support a group called Star, which helps to create the secure care pathways and standards. They are um, a group for secure care experience to young people and young adults and older adults um, who who want to come together, and meet people with similar experiences, but also want to help shape what provision for secure care and similar fields are going forward. They've already made significant impact on the landscape already through the work they've done for the standards. But we've certainly, we know that the, there's appetite amongst the existing star members to do even more. So if you something you might want to join in there, dear listener, uh, then please do get in touch uh, via email or whatever. That's, that's fantastic. And I can share the you know your, your email address as well, you know, as part of the, you know, when I'm sharing the podcast going forward. Um, so moving on, just to kind of, I suppose the one of the more kind of challenging kind of questions in Scotland that just now it's about physical restraint. So I'm involved in the Scottish Physical Restraint Action Group through Celsius uh, about you know looking at restraint reduction or actually you know you know, just not having physical restraint and kind of teasing that out uh, you know amongst practitioners and uh, academics. Uh, and those that have been in direct practice, and also some people with lived experience. Uh, start a question for yourself. You know, as a, as a nation, Scotland does have an aspiration that we won't restrain our children. Do you think that's possible? 
Yes, it's, it's the right aspiration to have. Um, how, uh, it's definitely the right aspiration to have. I think it's a real challenge and it's going to be a really difficult road to get to that stage. And I think that um, it's quite an emotive and complex issue. And I know through, my, I'm not I'm certainly not an expert on restraint. Um, and, I, and I would bow to those who are superior knowledge. And it, but I do know that there are competing this disparate views on what restraint is. And some people see it as very oppressive uh, and uh, a violent act. And, and, I, and I don't mean that in a criminal violent act, but in terms of your, your, your control of your own body has been taken from you. But I also know there are literature, Laura Steckley's work, for example, and the young people are, who have said that they found the physical restraint a really cathartic experience that helped them express hurtful emotions um, and deal with really stressful or hurtful situations that other that, that had it not had a physical restraint not been used at that point in time could have led to uh, self-injury self-harm you know something that would have put the the person at at risk so, <laughs> i suppose i'm scutting around the answer here because i don't have a definitive answer about whether it's possible or not because the, the, there are there are lots of different caveats and complexities that attach that might mean that for some children at some particular point the physical restraint is the best thing at that point in time but i certainly have the view that we should be using it as rarely as possible and as you will know Joe working in the environment the training around about physical restraint the vast majority of it is about the de-escalation techniques the the, the soothing uh, approach to take to try and um, ameliorate the risks that are there at that point in time um, rather than it being about you know where you put your arms where you put your legs technique and all those sorts of things yeah. Um, if people are going to be using restraint, they need to be the best qualified people that we could possibly get in order to help them do that job as best they possibly can. Because we, are, yeah. we should be using it only when it is the best thing for that child and when not using it would have caused significant harm to themselves or to, or to others. Um, right. I, you know, I, I don't think we should be using restraint because somebody's kicking a hole in a wall. You know, we can... We, I think was was it Stevie that was talking about it in his podcast of, um, of, or was it somebody else I was listening to? Uh, right. Maybe somebody who who was talking about a setting where they just do not use restraint at all, and they would just oh. paint paint and plaster the walls until they yeah. created that environment. They were yes. we are not going to restrain you. Uh-huh. That was that, that was Ian uh, looking at Isk. Uh, he said it was Irvin, but it was actually Air service in the air run by action for children at the time and I don't know if it's still running um, so it was a, as you say a real kind of complex uh, you know subject matter and you know uh, uh, I it's it's one of these you know it's, it, it could take hours to kind of try and kind of tease it out and um, it's one of the kind of horrible you know things in life and Ian Milligan again makes a good point that it's it kind of be looked at as a as a as an individual kind of you know 
piece of you know work or intervention, it's going to be seen as a, as a, as a through a wider lens in terms of society, how society views children, what people are like in Scotland in terms of culture. Is it a violent culture? It's a societal shift, I believe, before it can be eradicated. But I, I don't know if you've got anything else to say on that, just before we can move on, but uh, really appreciate your views here. No, I, I worked in residential, as I said myself, so I have been involved um, in the, the use of safe hold, physical restraint. I think the way you put the language and the phrase you use around it is quite important and can be quite uh, in, in, in telling in terms of your particular stance on it. But um, I have been involved in it myself in a, a slightly different settings and um, it's, it's not something you enjoy, anybody enjoys doing, of course. Um, and you as a really skilled practitioner that can that can help somebody deal with the anxiety or the the circumstances without having to re, to use physical restraint. And I think an important point that Ian made in his podcast was, um, whilst we're talking about physical restraint, we need to remember that all the other types of restraint that we're putting around about children, the overuse of medication, the, the improper use of medication, for example, and so on and so forth. Whilst if we're talking about secure care, the largest physical restraint, of course, is the door being locked. You, you, and you can't leave that particular space. That is another form of restraint um, that we need to bear in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and just finally, you know, in terms of in your role just now, you know, doing research, consultations, looking at it, you know, through that lens in terms of secure care, if you could project forward, you know, what, 10 years' time, what would, you, how would you, what would you like to see secure care looking like? So, thinking 10 years ahead, um, the promise will have come to fruition by then, I would hope. Uh, one of the ambitions for secure care is, uh, and the promise is that we don't use it inappropriately, uh, inappropriately. Mm -hmm. um, and we provide care within the community uh, that enables children to remain safe. I think there's lots of things that need to happen in order for that to happen as well. Lots of things um, relating to young people having opportunities to spend time safe in the community. A lot of the circumstances that precipitate admission into secure care can relate to exposure to adverse childhood experiences is one lens, but there's also a number, a huge number of other things that impact upon the children who enter secure care, the exposure to, to violence in the community, the exposure to offending behaviour, being the victim of, of, of crime themselves, um, the exposure to exploitation of one kind or another. So I think in order for us to achieve the promise of people not being inappropriately placed within secure care or rather children having robust community supports. Um, I, I really, I, I see that as the ultimate conclusion of Scotland having a very safe environment for children to grow up in. And I don't want, I would, my personal view is that I don't want secure care to be thought of as a bolt on. I like something that's sitting out there in an island when all the other services over here, I want secure care to be part of the spectrum of of supports and services that could support children at various times, um, and and in, and in essence, I see secure care as the and and a 
an acute later response to child protection. The children who uh -huh. are in secure care have huge levels of adversities, have been ex exposed to huge levels of neglect, abuse, trauma, and so on. And mm -hmm. secure care should be used to keep them safe, first and foremost, as well yeah. as responding, as well as providing a, a place where young people who have been um, convicted of significant levels of harm can can receive the treatment and support because to cut back to my other point the child who causes harm on the saturday night is also the child that's been harmed on the friday night and it's important to bear both of those in mind i uh, absolutely and i think that's a really good point to finish on you know just that bit but it's children we're talking about you know and we've got to keep that really at the kind of the front and centre uh, when, when we're you know, thinking about secure care or you know any sort of kind of like intervention that you know, talks about taking away the liberty of human beings. Um, I really think I really thank you for taking part. You know, it's been really insightful in terms of getting you know the metric from the I suppose the opinion of somebody that's you know an active researcher. And somebody's been in direct practice and has seen through different lenses. So, Ross, I really, really thanks. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll get some good feedback on this podcast and that kind of encourages other ways of thinking or, you know, other points of view taking a came out into the fore. Thanks a lot, Ross. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting Thank me. Well, folks, that concludes today's podcast, and thank you so much to Ross for taking part. As always, if you enjoy what you're listening to, please feel free to share the podcast across your networks, and do get in touch if you'd like to take part. Thank you.